0: podcast that takes a look at the things that happened just beyond the pages of your history book at the people, places and ideas that may have been mentioned in passing but play a much larger role in the story. I'm Josh Burns and today we'll finish up our first series on Mithridates the 6th by hitting the highlights of the third Mithridatic War and its aftermath. Fair warning, there's a lot of back and forth in this war with Pontus having the upper hand sometimes and Rome having the upper hand in others, as one would expect in a war. As the fallout series says, war war never changes. Also, I should point out that there are a lot of place names in this episode that sound like they could be the inspiration for a new Pokemon or something like that. So fair warning, there's that. I also say some form of the word siege a lot uh, in a pretty short period of time, so uh, there's that also. (laughs) Finally, if this is your first time listening to the podcast, I'm thrilled to have you, but you may want to go back and listen to parts 1 and 2 of this series to get a bit of the backstory. That said, let's get started. To recap from the end of the last episode, Nicomedes IV of Bithynia died and willed his kingdom to Rome. This smelled fishy to Mithridates, who immediately declared the will to be false. Mithridates claimed that the Romans were driven by greed to enslave everyone, and that the fake will of Nicomedes revealed their lust to dominate other lands. Mithridates would not sit idly by and just let his hated enemy gobble up real estate right next to his kingdom this meant war. In the spring of 74 BC, Mithridates offered up a sacrifice to Poseidon, Greek god of the seas and horses, to Helios, Greek god of the sun, and to Mithra, Persian guardian of light, oaths, and covenants. What's unusual about this sacrifice for us today is that it was not a typical slaughter an animal on an altar type of sacrifice. This sacrifice saw four splendid white horses pulling a riderless chariot, running off of a cliff into the waters below, and was meant to to ensure the success in the upcoming war with Rome. It seems, on the surface, to be a waste of four perfectly good animals, but keep in mind that horses were sacred to both Helios and Poseidon, and, as I understand it, oaths were super important to Mithra. The use of horses in this sacrifice also shows two things. One, that Mithridates was fabulously wealthy, wealthy enough that he was able to afford the loss of four pristine, pure white horses, and two, that Mithridates was serious about what he was going to do. Though he could afford it, horses then, and now, are not cheap animals to take care of. Before the gods, Mithridates was committing himself to the coming war. Following the sacrifice, Mithridates and his army marched virtually unopposed into Bithynia, causing the Roman governor, a man named Cata, to flee to the city of Chalcedon, where Istanbul is today. Once there, Cata ordered the gates to be closed, trapping other fleeing Romans outside of the city. Mithridates soon arrived, and after eliminating those poor unfortunate souls left outside the city, he placed the city under a short siege. His navy managed to get through the underwater chains protecting the city's harbor and wreak havoc on the Roman ships. It wasn't long before Chalcedon fell to the Pontic army. The first battle of the Third Mithridatic War was a great success for our friend Mithridates. Into our story now steps Lucius Licinius Lucullus. Lucullus was one of Sulla's protégés and was eager to make a name for himself by defeating the Pontic king. Becoming consul in 74 BC, he was given command of an army of about 30,000 infantry and 2,500 cavalry and marched to Anatolia. He would first meet Mithridates in the Battle of Autrigae, or as I like to call it, the unfought battle. On one side, Lucullus had 30,000 plus Romans, while on the other side... We are told that Mithridates had a force of around 300,000. Now, as usual, it's hard to know exactly how many troops were actually there, but it is safe to say that the Romans were vastly outnumbered, and they knew it. Both sides lined up facing each other. The eastern hordes on one side, the soon-to-be empire on the other. You can almost see the tumbleweed rolling by, the theme from Good, the Bad, and the Ugly plays, and the Romans possibly shaking at the possibility of being slaughtered and... I imagine the Pontic forces possibly feeling cocky and confident due to their sheer size and numbers. Nobody moved. Suddenly, the sky exploded. A huge flaming something ripped through the air and crashed to the ground between the two armies. Plutarch describes the scene saying, quote, And they were just on the point of commencing the engagement when, without any evident change but all at once, the sky opened and there appeared a huge flame-like body, which came down between the two armies in form most like a cask and in color resembling molten silver so that both armies were alarmed at the sight and separated End quote good old plutarch always understating what must have actually happened a big silver meteorite crashes into the ground in the middle of a battlefield and the only description we get is alarmed and separated probably more like ran away screaming in fear since you know the sky was falling the sky was falling but anyway, what to make of all this? How did the two commanders take this strange close encounter of the first kind? We don't know exactly how they would have seen it, but there are a few generalizations that we can make. First, for Mithridates and his people, heavenly phenomenon were usually seen as a good thing or a sign of victory. Don't forget that Mithridates' birth and ascension to the throne were heralded by comets lighting up the night sky meteors were also held to be a sacred symbol of Cybele, the mother goddess of Anatolia. Now usually Sibley is equated with other mother goddess-like uh, characters such as Gaia or Rhea or Demeter, and she was considered to be a goddess of victory and protection primarily for Anatolian cities. So all good things for the Pontic side. For the Romans, not so much. As we've mentioned before on the show, the Romans usually saw meteorological co- occurrences "...as evil omens and harbingers of terrible things to come. It's possible that Lucullus and his Roman generals saw the meteorite as a weird, but convenient excuse to not have to fight in a battle where they were clearly outnumbered. Sort of a way to save face and not be labeled as cowards. No, no, I I couldn't fight. The gods sent a big flaming rock down to the battlefield. Can't fight with that in the way. In any case, both armies withdrew from the battlefield. In the night, Mithridates marched his army to the west, to the port city of Cyzicus, and put it to siege." Now, looking back from the safety of over 2,000 years of history, I can't say that I really agree with Mithridates' strategy here. Sieges are definitely not good for the city being sieged, but they can be especially dangerous for the besieging army as well, since, in order for a siege to be properly executed, the army had to stay in one place for an extended period of time. If the besieging army ran out of food or was attacked, then the siege could be broken, and Mithridates had just settled in to attack Cyzicus with Lucullus' army coming right after him not going to lie, that doesn't seem too smart. Sure, he had left part of his army to guard a critical mountain pass between his main force and Lucullus' army, but he was essentially pinned down between the city and the Romans in coming winter as well. He would need all the help and speed that he could get, but the problem was he wouldn't get either of those things. Word reached Mithridates' ear that two of Lucullus' legions wanted to desert the Roman general. The information that comes down to us about this is spotty, but apparently Mithridates felt so confident in the idea of the defections that he actually and inexplicably pulled his troops from defending the mountain pass. Lucullus obviously moved forward into the high ground that Mithridates had just inexplicably abandoned. It was the dead of winter, and Mithridates' error meant that the only way he could be resupplied with food and other necessities was by ship. And things weren't looking so good on that front. Mithridates' next move was to take 3,000 prisoners from Sisychus, put them on a boat, and row them out into the harbor. Once there, the prisoners shouted to their friends inside the city, begging to be saved. The answer from the city was less than hopeful, with the Sisychus general supposedly saying, quote, You are in Mithridates' hands now. We cannot save you. Meet your fate like men. End quote. Realizing that the city would not capitulate, Mithridates did the only thing he could do order an all-out attack. Battering rams, catapults, siege towers, even a new contraption that was essentially a siege tower built on top of two ships. Anything and everything. But the Sizzicines held the line and pushed back the invading forces. Appian tells us that they, quote, left nothing untried within the compass of human energy, end quote. Still, in spite of their heroic defense of the city, a section of the wall crumbled. Things weren't looking good for the defenders as they sought to repair the hole in their walls. But then the goddesses stepped in. Plutarch says that goddesses intervened to save the city in general, and in particular, to oppose Mithridates in everything that he did. We are told that it was time for the annual sacrifices to Persephone, the Greek goddess of the underworld. This sacrifice required the use of a black heifer, and all of them were inconveniently in pastures across the water and far away from the city. Miraculously, a black heifer just so happened to swim over at just the right time for the sacrifice to be performed. Soon after this, a tremendous wind swept through the area and blew the Pontic siege towers over, effectively destroying them. Persephone herself then appeared, encouraging the people of Sisychus to stand firm against Mithridates' forces. Things looked really bad for Mithridates now. It was the middle of winter, he was trapped between the city of Cyzicus and Lucullus' army, supplies were running out, and supposedly the goddesses were against him but stubbornly he refused to give up he ordered new siege towers to be built and set his men to digging tunnels under the city walls and turning a nearby mountain into a giant ramp but reality slowly crept in starvation began to creep in on the icy frozen camp the pontic soldiers were eating whatever they could find weeds pack mules camels and even their own dead soldiers with the unburied dead came plague, ravaging those who were able to stay alive in the freezing conditions. Increasingly desperate, Mithridates himself looked for anything that would give him an advantage. After receiving a message from a Roman traitor inside Sisychus, the king went alone, alone, into the tunnels under the, under the city to meet with the betrayer. But this traitorous Roman turned out to be only a ruse to assassinate the king, and the Mithridates barely escaped with his life. Winter and the siege dragged on. Yet another blizzard struck and the newly built siege towers collapsed once again. Plague and starvation continued to ravage and rule over his troops. Thousands of his troops were dead, even though full-out combat was very minimal in the freezing conditions. Plus, Lucullus's army was a constant threat. It was time to face the inevitable. One night, Mithridates fled in one of the few ships still available to him and sent his infantry overland. Lucullus pursued, easily taking a great many prisoners and killing many more. The siege of Sisychus was over. Mithridates was heading home to Pontus to lick his wounds and prepare for the next round of warfare. While Mithridates takes a breather from war and questionable decisions, let's also take a quick look at what was going on in the Mediterranean area at this time. Sertorius, Mithridates' ally in Spain, had been assassinated and his traitorous Roman troops had finally been smashed by an up-and-coming Roman general named Gnaeus Pompeius Magnus, or, in English, and as he's more commonly known, Pompey the Great. More on him later. Elsewhere, the Thracian gladiator Spartacus had been thwarted in his rebellion, leading to 6,000 of his followers being crucified along the Appian Way, the road that led from Rome to the city of Capua. Lucullus had boasted to the Roman senate that he had successfully defeated Mithridates, yet he had not actually killed or captured the enemy king. In what will become a recurring theme, looting opportunities for the Roman legions were scarce, so their morale was low. Pompey's successes combined with Lucullus's failure to capture Mithridates and his soldiers' discontent meant that there was a chance that Lucullus would be stripped of his command. He had to do something, and something he did, by invading Pontus. Now invading Pontus must have been exactly what the loot-obsessed Romans ordered. The Pontic homeland was so rich with loot and treasure that the Romans actually began to throw away their less valuable prizes in order to make more room in their inventory. But the riches of the land came at a price. A particularly hilarious example comes to us from the city of Themyscira in northeast Anatolia. There the Romans tried to dig tunnels under the city in one of the standard ways to take a city in those times. Now, most of the time, the defenders would dig their own tunnels, meet up with the attacking army underground, and try to fight them off. That was a pretty standard way of doing things, but Appian tells us of a completely non-standard and completely hilarious way that the Themyscrians fought back. The defenders of the city did their best impression of Radagast and threw hives of furious bees into the tunnels. As the poor Romans flailed helplessly against the stinging insects, the ingenious Themyscirans unleashed weasels, foxes, wolves, boars, and bears into the tunnels. Wolves and bears. How? Did they just happen to have those sitting around in the town square like Zootopia or something? Anyway, other strange things happened to the Romans on their mission to capture Mithridates. While they were marauding around the countryside, the Romans encountered a strange new food. They were called cherries, and the Romans had never seen them before. Lucullus carefully stashed away some cherry pits and dug up some trees to send back to Rome. And thousands of years later, Cherry Dr. Pepper was born. But cherry trees don't capture kings, and in the spring of 71 B.C., Lucullus's forces marched on Kibera, Mithridates' own personal Disney World, and the home of some of his family members. Mithridates himself led 4,000 Scythian cavalry troops to repel Lucullus, But fighting reached a stalemate, with neither side willing or able to engage in another outright battle. Now the Romans were the ones laying siege to a city and were forced to forage for food and supplies. Mithridates' attempts to intercept and destroy those foraging parties failed over and over again, and morale began to plummet. Plutarch reports that Mithridates fell into a great despair, and his soldiers were overcome by confusion and helpless fear. How would they stop these Roman invaders who had come so far into their territory? Martin Luther King Jr. once said that the ultimate measure of a man is not where he stands in moments of comfort and convenience, but where he stands at times of challenges and controversy. Mithridates liked to talk a big game when he felt himself secure, but now when the tables had been turned and he was the one trapped, his true colors started to peek through. Gathering his best friends and his generals one night, Mithridates and company devised a plan to flee. These men would flee east to Armenia and seek asylum with King Tigranes, Mithridates' ally. In the middle of the night, these men began gathering their belongings and packing up. Now, if you believe Mithridates, then the plan was to give the order to retreat at daybreak, but the soldiers overheard the noise of packing up and came to the conclusion that their leader was abandoning them. Fearful and angry at this act of betrayal, the Pontic soldiers began attacking their leader's baggage train. Dressed in common clothes, Mithridates tried to reassure the angry mob that he wasn't abandoning them, but they would all leave together at dawn. The angry mob of his own soldiers wasn't having it. Order broke down and the Pontic soldiers either ran for it or stayed and tried to plunder their own king's stuff. Drawn to the scene by all of the chaos, Lucullus attempted to restore some semblance of order, but his loot-starved Roman legions joined in the looting and began killing indiscriminately in the quest to find more shiny and sparkly things. Kabira, Mithridates' personal resort, fell soon after, but the king was nowhere to be found. Lucullus must have been exasperated and furious with the knowledge that his quarry had slipped through his fingers. The sources tell us that Mithridates survived the angry mob of his soldiers and reconnected with his friends. Mounting a horse, the king and his friends fled from a party of pursuing Roman cavalry. A group of Lucullus's Galatian horsemen almost catch up to the group, but Mithridates slashed one of his saddlebags, allowing golden coins to spill out onto the road. Greedily, the enemy Galatians stopped to gather up the spilled gold and allowed the king to escape east to Armenia. By 70 BC, he completely disappeared off the Roman radar. Lucullus must have been furious. For three years he had searched for the king, and for three years he had been thwarted after coming so close. His efforts had become sort of fruitless. Yes, he and his soldiers brought lots of fabulous loot and shiny things to Rome, but they failed in their primary objective of killing or capturing the king. In Rome, rumors began to grow that Lucullus was not really trying to win the war, but was really trying to loot cities to make himself rich. Victory in battle followed victory in battle, but efforts to find the Pontic king were frustratingly difficult. Tigranes II in Armenia knew where the old king was, but naturally, he was being all kinds of difficult. Plutarch describes the interaction between Tigranes and a Roman ambassador named Appius Clodius who had been sent to talk to the Armenian king. After making the Roman wait for a considerable period of time, Tigranes II finally arrived to hear the Roman demands. I'll let Plutarch tell the story. Quote, as soon as he, Appius Clodius, had an opportunity of addressing the king, he told him plainly that he was come to take back Mithridates as one who belonged to the triumphs of Lucullus, or to denounce war against Tigranes. Though the king made an effort to preserve a tranquil mien, and affected a smile while he was listening to the address, he could not conceal from the bystanders that he was disconcerted by the bold speech of the youth. He who had not for near five and twenty years heard the voice of a free man, for so many years had he been king, or rather tyrant. However, he replied to Appius that he would not give up Mithridates, and that he would resist the Romans if they attacked him, end quote. Essentially, Appius Clodius says, give us Mithridates or else, to which Tigranes replies, make me. Plutarch also goes on to say that Tigranes was insulted by the fact that Appius did not address him by Shah and Shah, or the king of kings, so there's that. Roman diplomacy, am I right? Talk to a king like he's an equal, insult him, and then follow it up with an ultimatum. As you would expect, Appius Clodius was hastily dismissed, and Lucullus had no choice but to continue the war against this new foe. His soldiers were near mutinous upon hearing the order to march east. Meanwhile, Mithridates had been given one of King Tigranes' palaces to live in. Here, for the next two years, Mithridates would hide, recover, and wonder how it all went so wrong. He would also begin to prepare once more for how he would get back at the Romans. No longer would he rely on big battles to decide things. Like so many others throughout history, Mithridates wanted to adopt a more guerrilla style of hit-and-run attacks against his seemingly unbeatable foe. Maybe, just maybe, he will be able to keep the Romans off balance enough to keep the soon-to-be empire from striking back. Fortunately for Mithridates, Appius Clodius' arrogance made the coming conflict with Rome personal for Tigranes II. Generously, Tigranes gifted Mithridates with 10,000 expert cavalrymen to help the Pontic king harass the Romans. Mithridates gratefully accepted the enormous gift and began to head back to Pontus. But then, when everything seemed to be going their way, the soon-to-be empire struck back. Lucullus and his forces had put the city of Tigranocerta under siege. Now, Tigranocerta was to Tigranes what Kibera was to Mithridates, a place full of loot and other things of personal importance to the monarch. Mithridates and his 10,000 cavalry immediately turned back to help his ally and sent messages ahead to offer advice. Things like, don't fight the Romans head-on and stay defensive, and avoid clashing directly with the invincible Romans. Quite a change from his previous assertions, isn't it? Unfortunately, Tigranes ignored all of this advice. After all, the Romans were massively outnumbered and in unfamiliar territory. Sources tell us that Tigranes is supposed to have joked that, quote, if these Romans have come as ambassadors, there are far too many of them. If they have come as an invading army, there are far too few. Quote. As the battle was joined, no one expected the Romans to actually initiate it, but Lucullus seems to have had enough of the arrogance of his two enemy monarchs. He is supposed to have ridden to the front of his army, dismounted his horse, and raising his sword to the heavens said, For Frodo, and charged headlong into the enemy hordes. Okay, maybe it was more along the lines of, quote, this day is ours, my fellow soldiers, end quote, but I couldn't resist. Anyway, that scene from The Return of the King could really illustrate the scale of what the Romans were up against and what they would overcome. Somehow, the professional Roman soldiers overcame the vastly superior Armenian army, routing them and pursuing them until nightfall made it impossible to chase after them anymore. The victory was astounding. Sources tell us that Lucullus suffered extremely small casualties, with 5 dead and 100 wounded, while Tigranes lost more than a 100,000 infantry and cavalry. Now, again, these numbers are highly unrealistic unless the Romans were using the Canami code or something. However, there's no denying that the Romans were able to emerge victorious over a numerically superior foe. Lucullus has been praised by historians because With delay and caution, he wore down Mithridates, but with speed and surprise, he beat Tigranes. Yet in spite of this great victory, Lucullus still did not have Mithridates or Tigranes in chains or dead. His ultimate prizes still eluded him and disappeared into northern Armenia. It was at this point that Lucullus made a serious miscalculation. Perhaps riding high on the success of his recent victories, Lucullus convinced himself that he had finally taken care of Mithridates and Tigranes for good. After all, they were old men and were now on the run. He could afford to turn his attention elsewhere, right? Essentially, he convinced himself that they were beneath his notice. He had conquered Pontus and had utterly destroyed the Armenian army, all being vastly outnumbered. His men were constantly complaining about the lack of new loot available, but what else was new? So what else was there? Parthia. Parthia was still out there. Stubbornly refusing to promise neutrality, the Parthian kingdom occupied... What is now iran and pakistan they were also friendly with mithridates which just wouldn't do for these reasons lucullus decided that an invasion would not only put them in their place but would also cement lucullus's name in the history books as a great conqueror there was just one problem his army wouldn't budge they were weary of the constant fighting and refused to go any further east on this wild goose chase with a commander who couldn't finish the job and in the summer of 68 BC, Lucullus was forced to stay in Armenia. For the next year, Mithridates and Tigranes put their new plan of guerrilla warfare into action. With cavalry archers, the two kings would constantly harass the Romans, never engaging directly and never letting them get a moment's peace. Ancient historians criticized these tactics after the fact, calling this style of warfare shameful and disgraceful. Plutarch sums it up by saying that the Romans were worn out from the long and exhausting pursuit of their foes. Now, hit-and-run tactics like these, combined with a defending force on their home turf, have been employed to great effect through history by peoples such as the Mongols in their conquests and the Viet Cong during the Vietnam War. This time was no different. And then winter hit, far earlier than the Romans were expecting. Like the German army in 1941 Operation Barbarossa, the Romans found themselves marching in freezing temperatures without the proper clothing to keep them warm. Finally, the legionnaires had enough, and Plutarch tells us that with threats of desertion, they forced Lucullus to abandon this fruitless pursuit of Mithridates. Early in 67 BC, the Romans camped at Nisibis near the Tigris River and again refused to budge. Now let's leave Lucullus out there in the frozen fields of Mesopotamia and take a look at what was happening in Pontus. Instead of engaging the frozen Romans, Mithridates and the massive cavalry army headed back to his Pontic kingdom where he was welcomed joyfully by his people. The now about 67 year old king set about the most important task of raising an army to throw out the Roman legions that were still occupying his kingdom. Mithridates fought a series of battles against those legions that almost ended in disaster. In one early battle, while fighting on the front lines with his troops, Mithridates took an arrow straight to the cheek. Having just barely missed his eye, this arrow was, incredibly, the first war wound that the old king had ever received. Fortunately, the shamans that were with him knew a thing or two about healing arrow wounds, and with the help of some snake venom to stop the flow of blood, Mithridates recovered after a few days in their care. But in a later battle at a place called Zela, the king would suffer an even more gruesome injury. While Mithridates was in the middle of the fighting, a Roman centurion ran up to the king's horse and drove his sword as hard as he could into Mithridates' thigh. This bold centurion was immediately cut down and Mithridates was quickly brought to the healer shamans. And this was bad. Really bad. Wounds to the thigh can be incredibly dangerous even today if the body loses too much blood. Fortunately, those same shamans who had healed the king of his arrow wound did it again. Using snake venom a second time as a coagulant, The healers were able to stop the flow of blood and revive the king. Just a few hours later, Mithridates was back on his horse and ready to return to battle. Unfortunately for the super-tough king, the Romans had fled the battlefield, leaving about 7,000 dead. In that number were left behind 24 tribunes and about 150 centurions dead on the battlefield, which, according to Adrian Mayer, was the largest number of Roman military officers ever killed in a single ancient battle. For his part, Mithridates withdrew again into the wilds of western Anatolia. Meanwhile, our old friend Lucullus arrived with his disgruntled and weary legions. Surveying the battlefield, Lucullus, for some reason, did not make arrangements for the burial of all the fallen Romans. Instead, he gave the order to march after Mithridates, back into Armenia, back to where he had just come from. His soldiers flat out refused. told that lucullus went from tent to tent begging in tears for his men to get up and march the soldiers mocked and laughed at their former commander they threw their empty money bags at lucullus telling him to fight the enemy by himself since he knew how to get rich from it and just then at the worst possible time officials from rome arrived bearing news from the senate lucullus had been denounced and criticized for wasting years money and lives getting rich it was decided was more important to lucullus than actually winning the war the Senate had finally had enough, and Lucullus was stripped of his command. Pompey the Great would take over from here. Now, Pompey is an interesting guy. He was an incredibly talented general who celebrated two triumphs, despite being only 40 years old. Now, triumphs were public celebrations of military success, very much like a parade, that were usually held for victorious generals after completing a war. They were used to showcase all the loot and shiny things that the general had gathered for Rome, and usually featured a procession of the peoples the general had defeated. It was common for defeated kings, queens, princes, and princesses, and other important enemies to be forced to walk in chains along the parade route. In the Roman Republic, triumphs could only be awarded by the Senate, and the general had to essentially apply for one. As such, at this time period at least, multiple triumphs for the same person were pretty rare. Multiple triumphs for someone so young was almost unheard of. Anyway, in my research, what has struck me about Pompey is that he was at his best when he felt that the people liked him. He had attached himself to Sulla's regime, which allowed him to rise quickly through Roman society. He soon found himself elected consul and given the honorific title of Magnus, or the Great. Later on in his life, he would become even more famous for his interactions and confrontations with Julius Caesar in the First Triumvirate. But that is all in the future. For now, Pompey had a war with the slippery Mithridates on his hands, and he was determined to succeed where Lucullus had failed. Upon learning that Pompey the Great was coming after him with the full backing of the Senate to put an end to the Pontic king once and for all, Mithridates sent envoys to Pompey asking what terms would he demand for peace. Pompey's terse reply was, Unconditional surrender and give us our Roman traitors. Mithridates was enraged by this flippant reply and abandoned all pretense of trying for peace, by vowing, quote, I'll never make peace with the rapacious Romans, I'll never surrender anyone to them. End quote. In the late summer of sixty six BC, the two armies met in what has been called the Moonlight Battle, because of the simplicity and effectiveness of Pompey's actions in the battle itself. In truth, it wasn't really a battle at all, more of a slaughter. After chasing Mithridates back into Central Pontus, Pompey and his men staged an attack on Mithridates' camp in the middle of the night, with the full moon at their backs. Now this simple tactic, the moon at their backs, on such a bright night distorted the nighttime shadows of the attacking Romans, making it almost impossible for the disoriented Pontic archers to shoot them. The Romans charged the Pontic camp, causing confusion and chaos. Sources tell us that nearly 10,000 Pontic soldiers died or were captured that night, many of them unarmed and unarmored. Once again, though, Mithridates fled, but this time he had nowhere to go. For the next three years, Mithridates watched everything he had worked so hard to build fall apart. Tigranes II, his one-time ally, refused to help him and even put a bounty on his head. One of Mithridates' many sons had gone over to the Roman side, and the Romans were in control of the Black Sea. With nothing left but a few faithful friends, Mithridates headed north to the land of Colchis, There, the old man would brave the icy Caucasus mountains, trying to find some place safe to try to rebuild. Finally, Mithridates was able to make it to Pantacapion, on the eastern shore of Crimea, where he was welcomed by another son named Pharnaces. Once in Pantacapion, Mithridates sent messages to Pompey, promising that if Rome would restore Pontus to him, Mithridates would pay tribute to Rome. Pompey, busy conquering Palestine, refused, saying that Mithridates must present himself in person. Mithridates, of course, refused this and began once again to make plans to attack Rome, this time by marching over the Alps into Italy itself, much like Hannibal had done. The man just won't quit. But this time, things would be different. The people of Pantacapion and the surrounding area refused to cooperate with the unpopular war preparations and revolted. They did not want war with Rome, and certainly did not want to march all the way to Italy to wage an old king's war. Even his son Farnaces was in on it. Soon a mob formed outside of Mithridates' castle, where they hailed Farnaces as the new king. Mithridates' worst fear was to be turned over to the Romans, and now he found himself trapped in a castle in the middle of a suddenly hostile city. He sent several messages to his son, pleading for the safe passage out of the city. But the messengers were either killed outright or were convinced to betray the old king things were looking really bleak it looked more and more like the king would be turned over to his enemies the question was not if but when trapped in his castle with his few friends and some loyal family members mithridates thanked them for their loyalty and sacrifice he knew that he was a dead man but he wanted to go out on his own terms two of his young daughters were with him and not wanting them to fall into enemy hands, Mithridates did the unthinkable. Opening a secret compartment in the hilt of his dagger, he held his daughters in his arms and gave them poison, which worked instantly. Sadly, the old king then swallowed the rest of the poison. But nothing happened. The poison didn't kill him. He was immune. As Adrian Mayer puts it, The king who had made himself invulnerable to poisoning by ingesting infinitesimal doses of poisons all his life, was in the end unable to poison himself. End quote. Appian tells us that after jumping around and trying to force the poison through his system, Mithridates turned to his friend and general Bituitus, and said, quote, I have profited much from your right arm against my enemies. I shall profit from it most of all, if you will kill me and save me from the danger of being led in a Roman triumph one who has been an autocrat so many years and the ruler of so great a kingdom, but who is now unable to die by poison, because, like a fool, he has fortified himself against the poison of others. Although I have kept watch and ward against all the poisons that one takes with his food, I have not provided against that domestic poison, always the most dangerous to kings, the treachery of army, children, and friends. Batuitus granted the king's request. Mithridates VI, king of Pontus, and enemy of Rome, was dead. Now, before I go any further, I have to say that if you feel the need to end it all and go out on your own terms like the king here, please don't. Please find a way to get help. For the Romans, Mithridates' death was incredible news. Their longtime enemy would trouble them no more. Pompey received a triumph that lasted for two days and featured all the astounding treasures and riches from Anatolia. Pompey took all the credit, claiming that he had finally done what Sulla and Lucullus could not. Surprisingly, there arose among the Romans a certain grudging respect for the old king, who had defied them for so long. Cicero said that Mithridates was the greatest king since Alexander. Pliny stated that he was the greatest king of his era, and Roman historian Vellius said he was, quote, "...in strategy a general, in bodily prowess a soldier, in hatred of the Romans a Hannibal." end quote. The story of Mithridates VI is often told as a side note in the histories of those he fought against. That was how I initially heard of him, in a grad school class where we discussed Sulla and Pompey. There's a sad irony in the way his life ended that drew me to the mythology of the man who had gone up against two of Rome's greatest generals and had been described by his contemporaries as another Hannibal. It wasn't far off base to say that the wars that he sparked helped to bring along the death of the Roman Republic. His story stayed with me over the last four years and is part of the reason why I started this podcast in the first place. Now, I only hit the highlights of his life, but there is so much more to his story. I would encourage all of you to check out the major source of my information, Adrian Mayer's book, The Poison King, The Life and Legend of Mithridates, Rome's Greatest Enemy, if you're interested in learning more. It really is a fantastic book. It reads really easily. And I'll put a link in the Facebook and Instagram feeds for you to check out. Before we wrap things up, I wanted to answer a question that I received the other day from David. He asked why I sometimes say quote and end quote when I'm talking about something. The answer is that when I do that, I'm reading a direct quote from whatever source I'm talking about. For example, if I say, Plutarch says quote, then what follows is exactly what he wrote down and what the translator translated up until I say end quote. If I say something like, uh, Appian says that whatever, then I'm using the essence of what he said, but I'm paraphrasing or rewording it slightly to make it whatever I'm talking about make more sense in the sentence. The quote-in-quote also helps me give a little more legitimacy to some of the more hard-to-believe aspects of of the story, like the UFO-like thing that crashed in the middle of the battlefield or a Nike statue about to slam dunk onto a king's head. It lets the ancient sources speak, uh, and it's usually a good thing. Finally, I want to say thank you again to everyone for listening. I really appreciate all the support and encouragement. Uh, keep telling your friends and family, co-workers, and acquaintances about the show. And remember, you can always get in touch with me by going to Facebook or Instagram and searching for History on the Side podcast. Or you can email me at historyontheside@gmail.com at gmail.com if you have a question like David's or a suggestion. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time.